This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. No human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place which suggests evil in the face of a house. And yet, somehow, a maniac juxtaposition, a badly turned angle, some chance meeting of roof and sky turned Hill House into a place of despair, more frightening because the face of Hill House seemed awake, with a watchfulness from the blank windows and the touch of glee in the eyebrow of a cornice. Almost any house caught unexpectedly or at an angle could turn a deeply humorous look on a watching person. Even a mischievous little chimney or a dormer like a dimple can catch up a beholder with a sense of fellowship. But a house arrogant and hating never off guard, can only be evil. This house, which seems somehow to have formed itself, flying together into its own powerful pattern under the hands of its builders, fitting itself into its own construction of lines and angles, reared its great head back against the sky without concession to humanity. It was a house without kindness, never meant to be lived in, not a fit place for people or for love or for hope. Exorcism can alter the countenance of a house. Hill House would stay as it was until it was destroyed. (laughs) And that is the first paragraph of Chapter 2 of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Um, This is Episode 2 as we explore this haunted space. And uh, Christy... Haunted it is. Uh, Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Shirley Jackson and her relationship with her mother. It was our argument that a lot of the terror that she creates really springs originally from the dysfunction of living with a toxic mother. We introduced the idea of uh, reality versus illusion and the difficulty of knowing one from the other, especially in those toxic relationships. And we introduced the idea of feeling trapped and alone all of these feelings metaphorically expressing themselves, not just in the characters who populate the story, but 
also in the physical space, the haunted house itself. Yes, and Jackson borrowed from every gothic trope she could find to build for us a very relatable, identifiable, creepy house. It's so stereotypical. We have to wonder if that in itself of part of her strategy, which of course, obviously it is. But why? What is she expressing? Of course, we know that haunted houses do express evil and fear, and that's something that's always been true. We also know that houses in and of themselves occupy a very important place in our psyche. As people, we have an incredibly powerful psychological attachment to the physical spaces that populate our lives. Physical spaces can bring us memories as in favorite destinations on vacation. They can be sacred as in a church, and they can be haunted. Let's quote Dr. Montague as he explains the origins of haunted houses to his assistants in chapter 3. You will recall, the doctor began, the house is described in Leviticus as reparous, sarus, or Homer's phrase for the underworld, adeodomos, the house of Hades. I need not remind you, I think, that the concept of certain houses as unclean or forbidden, perhaps sacred, is as old as the mind of man. Certainly there are spots which inevitably attach to themselves an atmosphere of holiness and goodness. It might not then be too fanciful to say that some houses are born bad. Hill House, whatever the cause, has been unfit for human habitation for upwards of 20 years. What it was like before then, whether its personality was molded by the people who lived there or the things they did, or whether it was evil from its start, are all questions I cannot answer. Naturally, I hope that we will all know a good deal more about Hill House before we leave. No one knows even why some houses are called haunted. Sounds bad so far. Yeah, well, you know, Jackson herself uh, was always interested in houses, uh, and for good reason. Her grandfather was an important architect in San Francisco, and so it's kind of natural that she brought a lot of that family interest into her own life. Jackson wanted to write a ghost story, and then she set out to write Hill House. So I guess it just made sense for her to research a bunch of different houses in order to create the perfect one for her story. She even enlisted the help of her mother to get research about a famous haunted house in San Jose, California, the Winchester Mystery House, one that still attracts millions of visitors every year. (laughs) (laughs) I also noticed uh, that Dr. Montague directly references this famous house. He does. I I wish I could say I'd heard of it, but... I hadn't. So I looked it up. Um, a woman by the name of Sarah Winchester inherited $20 million in 1881 from her dead husband and his family. That's not a bad amount of money to inherit. <laughs> right. Well, the family money was made selling firearms, as in Winchester firearms. Oh, okay. She was said to have moved to California to build a home for the spirits of the dead people who had been killed by the firearms made by her husband's family. Ouch. <laughs> the Winchester house is really bizarre. It's it's worth Googling and looking at it. I mean, I can see uh, why it has so many visitors. It's enormous, 24,000 square feet, uh, 10,000 windows, 47 stairways, and 
fireplaces and 160 rooms and 17 chimneys, among other things. <laughs> well, I confess I looked at it, too. And it is weird looking at it with all those turrets. It reminds me of what a proper haunted house should look like that. And Jackson did study it in her houses in her stories have turrets, but Hill House isn't just one house, and it's definitely not as large as the Winchester House. It's funny, uh, when you get to looking at or asking the question, where's Hill House, what's it based on, that you see so many theories of different people that think Hill House has been inspired by different things. Stanley, that's Shirley's husband, worked as a professor at a women's college, uh, I think uh, we talked about that a little bit last episode, but he worked at Bennington College in Vermont. And there they have a music building on campus called Jennings Hall. But Jennings Hall isn't really in the middle of campus. It's kind of way off, not around the other buildings. It's made from gray stone and it stands against the hills, very much like the opening of Hill House. So lots of people swear that's Hill House. Uh, Ruth Franklin, Jackson's most recent biographer, and from what I can tell, probably the leading expert on all things Jackson, talks about a file she found in Jackson's archives at the Library of Congress when she was researching Jackson's life. And in the file, she found a collection of pictures and newspaper clippings about all the different places and events that inspired Hill House. And she found a newspaper article about a poltergeist incident in Long Island. And there were pictures of a couple of castles. There were information about that Winchester house you talked about. But then she found one called the Edward H. Everett Mansion, which is also something I hadn't heard of. It's also in Vermont and really near Bennington, where Jackson and her family live. So, of course, she would have been really familiar with that property. So Franklin and her husband went up there while she was researching for her book on Jackson, and that's where she thinks Hill House is. I mean, she was basically shocked at how evil the house looked, and she and her husband both got chills just being on the property. So that's Franklin's vote, and she's the expert of, of the house that most inspired Hill House. But at the end of the day, Hill House is not really a place at all. It's an invention of Shirley Jackson's mind. It's also a creepy old metaphor for something. And when you're reading the book, by chapter four, and that's where we're going to try to get to this episode, you're not really sure what it could be. But you intuitively feel that it has to have something to do with a home, but not a happy one. Maybe a place that should have been happy, but something is twisted. Or maybe a place that promised to be happy, and then it was lied about. I think when we read novels, especially the ones we like, sometimes we don't really know what it is that we're identifying in the novel that we can understand. We just feel the connection. I think that's the big question in this book, especially at the beginning. What am I supposed to make of this house? Why am I compelled to read about it? And if it's so creepy, why does Eleanor stay there? What compels her to go inside? What is attracting her and us to Hill House? Is it just that it's not Eleanor's sister's house? And so from her perspective, anything is better than that. Is she just looking for a home? As we read further on in the story, we do come to understand that maybe that's exactly what this is all about. 
And of course, for all of us, having a home is important. Wouldn't you agree, Gary, with Bean Crosby, that there's just no place like home (laughs) for the holidays? Interesting the way you work that into a haunted story there. (laughs) Homes and families are important. Uh, There's a lot of psychological research to support that, of course. But let's just narrow in on the idea of that physical space that we associate with our home, uh, where we currently are living and hopefully nesting. And for many of us, if we're going to make it our home and not just a place where we sleep or maybe just eat, uh, a home is part of our self-definition. It is that physical space that expresses uh, who we really are. That's why decorating a home in your own way and making it beautiful to you is so important. And and uh, I think it's a great encouragement to tell people, hey, even if you're wealthy enough to hire professional decorators, uh, you need to be involved in that process in a personal way. And most of us, however, don't have that problem, but uh, <laughs> no. we should make our home reflective of our interests and our passions and our tastes. And uh, we should let it reflect our identity really in a positive way. And it's also true. And I quote Robert Frost here. Oh, okay. <laughs> home is the place that when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> uh, that's another very important idea. It is a place where you feel safe and you can be oriented in space and time. And it's a place where you can be vulnerable without being exploited. Um, but that's where the dangers reside, right? If you are vulnerable, then by definition, you can be exploited. And of course, it happens. And it definitely happened to Shirley Jackson. For sure. Um a house to me, though, really kind of has like its own spirit to it, as strange as that sounds, especially if you've lived in the same place for a long time. In some sense, a physical space has to develop its own energy and personality. Let me tell you uh, what I mean by that. So Gary and I got married when my oldest daughter was a junior in college. And when she entered our new house, her new home, Even though we put her things in a room, put her pictures on the wall, and tried to make her feel at home, she didn't really have an opportunity to bond with that physical space. She was living at college in a house all her own. She just spent a few days a year with us. Her room at our house was nice, it was beautiful, but it just wasn't her friend yet. A full year later, we had a house fire. I was in tears. Things were burning. Thankfully, just one room truly burned if you're interested in the fire. But Anna was stoic about the whole thing. She just couldn't be sad. She told me point blank, I don't feel anything. I don't feel like this is my space. This isn't my home. And of course, this made me sad because I wanted to feel at home uh, there in our space with her sister and her stepfather. But it wasn't something I really had any power to create. There are no memories in that space for her at that time. And the only thing that would ever change that is creating memories for that space in that time. And of course, in our case, the fire was a memory for all of us. And it really is about the passing of time in a physical space and what we do with that space in that time. Living there, bringing fins there, filling up the air, the smell of food, the fireplace, sharing meals, playing games. You know, the house has to develop its own spirit. And hopefully, in our case, we want it to be a positive, well, everyone's case, a safe place, a welcoming one, and one that, you know, you can continue to develop over the years. 
Well, that sounds like a very positive and powerful thing. I, I think it so is. let's contrast it with what Shirley Jackson does with a house. <laughs> uh, so, you know, of course you're right in what you just said. Uh, that is why it's important to be intentional about that sort of thing. Because uh, just as a space can be positive, it can also be negative, as Shirley will make obvious. And just as it can have a positive effect on a person, it can have a negative effect on one as well. Um, William Sachs, who's a uh, professor of anthropology, says it this way, people and places where they reside engage in a continuing set of exchanges. They have determinate mutual effects upon each other because they are part of a single interactive system. So, you know, listen to what he means. Um, People and places engage with each other. They interact with each other and they have effects on each other. And they are part of one single interactive system. I mean, it's a very interesting way of looking at how we engage the world. Um, it's true. It, it, it's originally a Southeastern Asian concept, but it really nails a universal truth. And it also is part of a, a psychological truth, which is, says the environment makes us and we make the environment. And the two are always interacting on each other. Well, and it's that very idea that Jackson is just taking and running wild with in her book, Physical Space Interacting Actively with the People Who Occupy the Space. It's the whole book. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Reading here how Jackson plays around with the concept of this house is really a a hyperbolized version of spaces interacting with people. And in her case, she builds an entire 80-year history of negative memories in this house. And uh, here, crazy enough, um, the house is actually a villain. Uh, Although I know that's not totally obvious by the end of Chapter 4, but even early on before the house spooks a single person, when we read the history of the house, we can see how much negative emotion and hurt are part of the spirit of the house. Well, for sure. And Jackson does make Hill House into a literal character in the story. This house has emotions. She tells us explicitly that this house is without kindness and has no concession to humanity. Not unlike her own mother in some sense. Hmm. (laughs) But she goes on to say that Hill House is not fit for love or for hope. That's literally what she says. But unlike a real house in the real world, what makes this fictional story creepy is that we're going to see that the house has agency. Or it appears to. Mm, That's a scary thought. The house does stuff. Or maybe it does stuff. That's the unanswered question. Who's doing the stuff in the house? Either way, of course, this is all the opposite sort of things that we want in our physical home. And I'm sure almost everyone would agree with that. And let's be mindful here. Shirley Jackson spent a lot of time thinking about her house. She spent a lot of time... In fact, most of her time thinking about her home. She was, after all, first and foremost before anything else, a homemaker. She was extremely intentional about what she invested her time in. She did a lot of cooking and neglected a lot of cleaning, opting to make her space fun and livable and full of memories, which was really kind of contrary to the popular standards and practice of her day. She probably better than most writers of any genre at any time, knew exactly how powerful a home was and could be and how a person could frame it. Heck, she financed her entire life out of humorously discussing hers. Her house was famously vibrant, full of life, full of energy, full of visitors. Some were celebrated literary friends. Others were 
the gazoodles of childhood playmates yeah, that? that were continuously bouncing between the walls. I mean, she clearly knew how to make a home happy, but here in the book, she strips all of that positivity away, and we see she also knows what a house is that doesn't have kindness. So interesting. What's also interesting to me is that historically, um, this haunted house archetype goes back hundreds of years, well before Jackson ever came on the scene. And we all know this. I mean, who hasn't seen pictures of those gloomy castles and old Gothic stories? And uh, we all know those houses that wreaked havoc on Victorian readers, on Scooby-Doo followers. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and Shaggy. <laughs> I've read several of those to my own children over the years. Um, and now that I think about it, all these haunted houses kind of look like Hill House. <laughs> they usually have two stories, maybe a turret or a tower, but for sure a, a black cat on a porch and bats coming out of a window and a full moon somewhere behind it. Yes, and a small detail, a black cat crossed in front of us yesterday, so I hope we don't have any bad luck in the future. <laughs> well, we didn't have any immediate bad luck. That's true. Uh, I think uh, I've seen more than one or mailed more than one of those Halloween cards of my very own, but literary haunted houses are different than the Scooby-Doo thing. In literary fiction, authors are using these gothic tropes, and I'm going to put Jackson, obviously, in this group, to create some sort of metaphor to flesh out something moral or psychological or universal. And this makes the inside of the house way more scarier than the outside, as creepy as those images are to me, to be honest. The house represents something inside that's scary and something that really exists, not just in the fake gothic world, but in our world. So the question is, what about this house scares us? What are we afraid of? What are the ghosts? <laughs> and for me, although I know this is totally a non-literature way of looking at things, to answer that question, I find myself looking at Shirley Jackson as a person and the world she lived in. You know, Shirley Jackson was a woman of the 50s. She was a writer and a commentator and a deep thinker about the world. And she was a daughter, as we discussed last week, but she was also a mother herself. And the definition of motherhood in the 1950s was unique in American history uh, because, and I talked about this a little last episode, but there was a giant shift after World War II for the American family, and especially for women. Last episode, I talked about that um, second wave of feminism, and Jackson, as a professional woman, may have looked at all of that. But today, I want to bring up uh, another important uh, idea, and that is the idea of the post-war rush to the suburbs and America's cult of the family. That That's a very big distinctive historically about this time period. Uh, and in fact, it, it's still very much a part of our American identity, even to this day. After World War II, life changed for almost everyone in a lot of positive ways. And life wasn't as hard as it had been before the war. People were able to own homes and people seemed to want families. And it was a, a status symbol. And we all wanted a particular kind of family, the nuclear family with a mother, a father and children who were a product of the age. And I've always found it interesting that the nuclear age, which starts after World War II with the atomic bomb, is that a we, pun? And we have the nuclear family. <laughs> so. Well, you know, that's not just an American thing. I mean, isn't that what everyone aspires to all over the world? I mean, isn't that just, you know, humanity? 
Of course, but for America, uh, in this post-World War II era, everything was changing and prospering uh, in a new way. And so this was not actually a pipe dream. It was you mean a house. Yes, owning property. Uh, it was a tangible way that had never been possible before. I mean, think about of mice and men and how destitute things were during the Depression. I mean, that was all over. Now, people had time to think about things like competitive living. Uh, <laughs> before that, we all were just trying not to starve. And uh, we also had uh, mass media that was projecting what prosperity looked like, or at least what it should like, look like. Advertising was in full bloom. And this kind of uh, atomic family was the picture of happiness. Happiness. And, <laughs> yes. So this social framework was on the covers of all the magazines. It was in the movies. It was in the TV shows. It was sanctioned by our churches. How good or successful we were as humans depended on how well we created uh this particular family. And if your family wasn't this kind of family, we might have used the word broken. <laughs> I've heard that. So, anyway, uh, you came from a broken home. Now, I know this very personally because this was my reality. I was uh, raised in what would have been called a broken home at that time period. My parents were divorced, although I'm not from the 50s, <laughs> I would like to point out. But even during my childhood, this was a, a shameful thing for a lot of children. Uh, something was wrong with you, some of your family, with your home. And uh, Shirley Jackson's home wasn't physically broken at all, at least not in the way that mine was. But the appearance of perfection haunted her from the earliest memories. And I mean, her parents were in hot pursuit of that perfection and that competitive living. And, and as an adult, when she was homemaking, she was very aware of all those family and social dynamics at work, almost all of her writings center around these ideas in one way or another, the fiction and nonfiction. It's just this core of who she is. Well, which brings us back to Hill House, because if you look at a home and the way you just described a place where individuals are supposed to belong, and we look at these characters from that perspective who are showing up at Hill House, that's not who they are. These characters are not coming from that kind of you know, perky 50s background. They're all broken if we play, you know, close attention. Eleanor doesn't have a father, and now she doesn't have a mother. Theo is very vague about her entire identity, even about who she lives with. He, Shirley is very careful to, to make nondescript if her roommate is even a man or a woman. The only thing she lets out about Theo in the introductory comments is that she spends her vacations alone at boarding school. Uh, so that's kind of dark. It is. And then when you get to Luke, he's going to claim, of course, this is later on, that he doesn't have a mother. So I guess none of them really have a place to go for the holidays to use, you know, being Crosby mm. <laughs> again. Uh, when they get to Hell House, although the house itself is creepy, they seem happy to have found each other. The lure of having what this house may be offering is greater than the risk of what could be scary about it being haunted. The girls even wear bright colors to brighten up the jewelry home. They run outside. The house is in a valley and kind of covered up. But they also claim it's a place for picnics, and that's something happy families do. And, of course, we'll see at the end that there's a parody of this picnic that's going to haunt those girls. But in the beginning, Eleanor and Theo, you know, by the end of this chapter, they're claiming to be cousins. And then the last sentence of chapter two is this. Would you let them separate us now, now that we've found out we're cousins? <laughs> when they meet Luke in chapter 3, Eleanor very quickly says, 
Then you're one of the family, the people who own Hill House, not one of Dr. Montague's guests. Of course, she doesn't mean her own family, but for Eleanor, in some ways, that is what she's fantasizing about. This notion of family, a place to call home. Let me also point out that by this point in the story, even though we're still in the very beginning, the house has already played a benign trick on Eleanor and Theo. There was an incident about a rabbit frightening them. It's cute and funny, but odd nonetheless. Hill House for Eleanor, although it's obviously ugly, vile, and haunted, is not an unhappy place. It holds promise. When they come in and meet Dr. Montague, he pours drinks for everyone, and Eleanor comments, Everything's so strange. I mean, this morning I was wondering what Hill House would be like, and now I can't believe that it's real and we're here. She struggles to believe it, but as she sits with the other three, and the thought she has is this, and I quote, I am the fourth person in this room. I am one of them. I belong. Wow, that's powerful. And, of course, all of the conversation between the four of them is fun-loving, and they make jokes about what they do in the other world, and almost all of it is nonsense. (laughs) It really is. It's fun, though. Eleanor talks about being the talk of cafes. Luke says he is a bullfighter, and Theo claims to be clad in silk and gold. And notice that Dr. Montague assumes the role of a traditional father figure. He calls them children, and he tells them stories. Let's read that part. They all sit around, and he tells the story of Hill House. Let us have a little more brandy, the doctor said, and I will tell you the story of Hill House. He returned to his classroom position before the fireplace and began slowly, as one giving an account of kings long dead and wars long done with, his voice was carefully unemotional. Hill House was built 80-odd years ago, he began. It was built as a home for his family by a man named Hugh Crane, a country home where he hoped to see his children and grandchildren live in comfortable luxury and where he fully expected to end his days in quiet. Unfortunately, Hill House was a sad house almost from the beginning. Hugh Crane's young wife died minutes before she first was to set eyes on the house when the carriage bringing her here overturned in the driveway and the lady was brought, ah, lifeless, I believe is the phrase they used, into the home her husband had built for her. He was a sad and bitter man, Hugh Crane, left with two small daughters to bring up, but he did not leave whole house. Children grew up here, Eleanor asked incredulously. The doctor smiled. The house is dry, as I said. There were no swamps to bring them fevers. The country air was thought to be beneficial to them, and the house itself was regarded as luxurious. I have no doubt that two small children could play here, lonely perhaps, but not unhappy. Well, I hope they went wading in the brook, Theodora said. She stared deeply into the fire. Poor little things. I hope someone let them run in that meadow and pick wildflowers. Their father married again, the doctor went on. Twice more, as a matter of fact. He seems to have been unlucky in his wives. The second Mrs. Crane died of a fall, although I have been unable to ascertain how or why. Her death seems to have been as tragically unexpected as her predecessor's. The third Mrs. Crane died of what they used to call consumption somewhere in Europe. There is somewhere in the library a collection of postcards sent to the two little girls left behind in Hill House from their father and their stepmother traveling traveling from one health resort to another. 
The little girls were left here with their governess until their stepmother's death. After that, Hugh Crane declared his intention of closing Hill House and remaining abroad, and his daughters were sent to live with a cousin of their mother's, and there they remained until they were grown up. I hope Mama's cousin was a little jollier than old Hugh, Theodora said, still staring darkly into the fire. It's not nice to think of children growing up like mushrooms in the dark. They felt very differently, the doctor said. The two sisters spent the rest of their lives quarreling over Hill House. After all his high hopes of a dynasty centered here, Hugh Crane died somewhere in Europe shortly after his wife, and Hill House was left jointly to the two sisters, who must have been quite young ladies by then. The older sister had, at any rate, made her debut into society. My goodness. First of all, don't marry that guy. It's a death <laughs> sentence. But it's a creepy story, and the Crane family is definitely a miserable group of people. But getting to the current moment, if Mr. Montague is the father figure, Luke, Theo, and Eleanor are the kids, then in some sense, the house has to be the mother. Who else is there? But from the history of the house, as you clearly read, there had never, ever been a mother to live there. Yes, and that brings me back to my discussion of the 1950s, and then I'll move on. Uh, before the 50s, life in the United States was more difficult, and many people were struggling to exist, mostly fighting Mother Nature on a farm or a ranch somewhere. Uh, when wealth came to the United States in that post-war era, uh, like we already said, forming an ideal family and an ideal home was at the heart of that. But at the heart of that home were the children. And um, interestingly enough, a new word is going to show up in a Webster Dictionary in 1958 that had never existed in English before. Huh. You know what that word is? What's that word? That word is parenting. <laughs> oh, hard gosh. To, hard to believe that word was non-existent before 1958. And uh, whatever it meant, parenting was about the responsibility of making these perfect children, or at least making a perfect growing up experience for these children. And uh, how to do that was naturally, uh, again, in a very uh, American form, controversial and divisive. <laughs> of course it was. Uh, there was this book that came out in 1944 by a doctor by the name of Dr. Benjamin Spock that many people will recognize. And this book took the United States by storm. And in his book, he claimed parents really shouldn't discipline their children. Uh, they should be permissive. The idea before was that humans were evil and children were uh, humans, so therefore they were evil, so they needed to be disciplined and tamed into doing right. And you didn't want to indulge them, you didn't, or you would spoil them, uh, which is interesting because of the phrase, children are better seen and not heard. <laughs> but Dr. Spock took that opposite approach. His theory was that all of us are good and it's not possible to spoil a child. And I would like to say that's part of the post-World War II positive psychology movement there. Um, a child who is loved will never be spoiled by things you give him or her or do for them. Uh, if they had everything they needed, they didn't need to act out or misbehave. Well, in either case, no matter which side of the argument you fell on, one thing both camps had in common was that was that the child was the center of the home and everything was about the children. And is that true today in a lot of places? Oh my gosh, I think it's just gotten worse. Uh, but... This was where Shirley Jackson, as a mom, fits in and weighs in. Look at the titles of her two books. And these are essays about her children. Title one is Life Among the Savages. And the other one is Raising Demons. Mm. 
Jackson took seriously uh, this debate about parenting. In 1960, she wrote a book titled Special Delivery, a useful book for brand new mothers. I want to read a small quote from an essay in there, and the essay is called Who's the Boss? After careful study, this is Jackson talking, by the way, after careful study, it is going to be clear to the earnest mother that the enormous propaganda on child raising in books, magazines, and even advertisements is being written by babies. Baby is the boss. The articles point out flatly. First, you are waiting for him, and then you are waiting on him. Perhaps this is because 20 or 25 years ago, the going rage in baby care was exactly the opposite. Children who were allowed a little freedom of choice were going to be spoiled, and the worst possible thing an anguished mother could do was pick up a crying baby. In our family, there was a sharp division of opinion on the question of the authority of the child. Our four children ardently support the cause of absolute indulgence, (laughs) warmly seconded by their grandparents on both sides. My husband and I bolstering one another secretly with reminders that we are firm, righteous, fair, stem, although impartial, band beyond all else, the heads of the family, have managed to fight the issue to a standstill somewhere between the two camps. Now that is funny, and that is accurate. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, that's why she was good at her job. Uh, but even in Hill House, uh, there are parts of this dialogue you know, that are funny, too. I mean, I find myself chuckling all throughout this book, especially when we get to Mrs. Montague. She's my favorite. Absolutely ridiculous. But here's the point that I'm getting to. Eleanor is our central character, the child, no doubt. We are wedded to her point of view. There's no doubt that the allure of Hill House is also her desire for a family to not be alone. One of the creepier moments for me in this book is Eleanor's constant revisiting the phrase, journeys end in lovers meeting. I think it's repeated at least 14 times, maybe more than that. What is that about? Well, you know, it's something that you got to really think about. I mean, 14 times. Uh, it's a quote from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which is a comedy about a girl named Viola. Twelfth Night is a very typical Shakespeare play. We actually just watched it in the park this summer in Nashville. It's a happy play, and there are lots of missteps and misidentities. But in the end, Viola finds true love. The journey for Viola ends in a lover's meeting. But the way Jackson keeps using it... Uh, isn't like the way Shakespeare uses it at all. It really isn't romantic at all. Eleanor wants to meet love, but I'm not sure she's particular about the kind of love she wants to meet. Uh, it doesn't. There's nothing about any of this that's in, sexual for sure. Uh, I mean, there's this little bit of f- flirtation with Luke, but that ends pretty poorly. Uh, there's a little bit about the abusive relationship that Hugh Crane has has with his daughters. But Eleanor is looking for a family. She wants to be the center of someone's world. And that's normal. It's understandable. But she's also a bratty kid. We're going to see that exhibited in many ways. She's judgmental of everyone else in the house. Jackson is going to create every member of this family on Hill House as selfish, dysfunctional, self-orbiting 
Every member of the family is tyrannically trying to be in control. And notice that is what Dr. Montague pointed out in the history of the house. Hugh Crane, who built the house, is a horrible father. He parented his daughters, we find out later, through sheer terror. The house is a horrible mother. It's oppressive and vile and deceitful. But the Crane kids are terrible, too. They're competitive and hurtful. And now we're going to get to these kids. And that's what we're going to call Luke, Theo, and Eleanor. They're the kids. And all three of them are portrayed very much as self-centered and competitive. Dr. Montague, in this playful exchange at dinner, says this and notices Jackson's careful words here. He's going to say this. You are three willful, spoiled children who are prepared to nag me for your bedtime story. That is loaded language that in 1950, everybody would recognize. So you're saying, uh, Jackson is saying, (laughs) children are tyrannical as well as mothers. I mean, is everyone tyrannical? Well, I'm not going to weigh in on that comment yet, but maybe. (laughs) I want to point out uh, something else that's interesting. Both Theo and Eleanor were selected to come to the house because they have powers. Theo has telepathic powers, and Eleanor can create these poltergeist experiences where she can move things around, maybe even without her own knowledge, subconsciously. And this, to me, is an important detail to understand moving forward. They're not really powerless, and Jackson leaves room, we'll see, Uh, that both of them perhaps are exercising their powers in various places in the story. Hmm. What do you mean by that, that that, that they may be using their powers or maybe they aren't? We we can't be sure. That's it, exactly. And we're not going to be sure. And we're not even sure that if they are using these powers, they know that they're using them or even understand that they have them. Uh, Now let's go back and think about the house. As the story sets itself up in the exposition, four very different people have moved into the house. The only thing they have in common is that they have some sort of brokenness in their background. Even Dr. Montague, as we're going to find out later, has this hideous wife. Hmm. Uh, But they're all willing to move into a house that's supposedly haunted. How and by whom, they don't know. And what are they going to do? Of course, this question comes up in their evening together, their first bonding experience, sharing food and drink. Dr. Montague confesses that he has no idea what will happen to him or them, but they're going to take notes of what happens. And then they drink brandy. And they and Jackson makes a point of this, and Luke points it out. They're drinking the spirit. Mm. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Uh, before they go to bed that first night, Theo and Eleanor share their stories of where they come from. Let's just read that short little part. You're funny, Theodora said and touched Eleanor's cheek with her finger. There are lines by my eyes, Eleanor thought and turned her face away from the fire. Tell me where you live, Theodora said. Eleanor thought, looking down at her hands, which were badly shaped. We could have afforded a laundress, she thought. It wasn't fair. My hands are awful. I have a little place of my own, she said slowly. An apartment like yours, only I live alone, smaller than yours. I'm sure I'm still furnishing it, buying one thing at a time, you know, to make sure I get everything absolutely right. White curtains. I had to look for weeks before I found my little stone lions on each corner of the mantel. And I have a white cat and my books and records and pictures. 
Everything has to be exactly the way I want it because there's only me to use it. Once I had a blue cup with stars painted on the inside, when you look down into a cup of tea, it was full of stars. I want a cup like that. What's interesting about this exchange is that we as readers already know Eleanor is lying. This story isn't true. None of it is. Things at Hill House are not what they appear to be. In chapter four, when they tour the house, Dr. Montague makes a point that that's true for the house itself. I dare say, he went on, that old Hugh Crane expected that someday Hill House might become a showplace like the Winchester House in California or the many octagon houses. He designed Hill House himself, remember, and, and I've told you before, he was a strange man. Every angle, and the doctor gestured toward the doorway, every angle is slightly wrong. Hugh Crane must have detested other people and their sensible, squared-away houses because he made his house to suit his mind. Angles, which you assume are the right angles you are accustomed to and have every right to expect are true, are actually a fraction of a degree off in one direction or another. I'm sure, for instance, that you believe that the stairs you are sitting on are level because you are not prepared for stairs which are not level. They moved uneasily, and Theodore put out a quick hand to take hold of the balustrade, as though she felt she might be falling. Are actually on a very slight slant toward the central shaft. The doorways are a very little bit off-center, and that may be, by the way, the reason the doors swing shut unless they are held. I wondered this morning whether the approaching footsteps of you two ladies upset the delicate balance of the doors. Of course, the result of all these tiny aberrations of measurement adds up to a fairly large distortion in the house as a whole. Theodora cannot see the tower from her bedroom window because the tower actually stands at the corner of the house. From Theodora's bedroom window, it is completely invisible, although from here it seems to be directly outside her room. The window of Theodora's room is actually 15 feet to the left of where we are now. Well... He's describing the house, and what you're supposed to walk away with is that the house is off. You can't see it at first, but it's off-center. There's a fairly large distortion because so much is off. There's also this marble statue of Mr. Crane. That veranda's crooked. There's a cold spot in front of the nursery that, ironically, is in the middle of the house. And then the chapter ends with noises. <laughs> and mm. this is the first really scary part in the book. Eleanor apparently wakes up with someone calling her. She thinks it's her mother at first because but then she re realizes she's at Hill House. When she goes uh into Theo's room because you know, I guess she's frightened, Theo is scared out of her mind because she's heard someone knocking. Plus, it's terribly cold. The noise gets louder until Eleanor shouts wildly. Go away, go away. The door trembles and shakes against the hinges, and ultimately they hear a little giggle and a whisper and a laugh, and all that happens before the doctor and Luke can get to them. <laughs> Giggles, that's scary. I mean, it really uh, is. that's all creepy and very definitely the stuff scary movies are made of. Yes, and then look at the end with Dr. Montague's last observations after the girls go through what has happened to them. First, he said, Luke and I were awakened earlier than you ladies. Clearly, we have been up and about, outside and in, for better than two hours. 
led on what you perhaps might allow me to call a wild goose chase. Second, neither of us, and he glanced inquiringly at Luke as he spoke, heard any sound up here until your voices began. It was perfectly quiet. That is, the sound which hammered on your door was not audible to us. When we gave up our vigil and decided to come upstairs, we apparently drove away whatever was waiting outside your door. Now, as we sit here all together, all is quiet. I still don't see what you mean, Theodora said, frowning. We must take precautions, he said. Against what? How? When Luke and I are called outside and you two are kept in prison inside, doesn't it begin to seem, and his voice was very quiet, doesn't it begin to seem that the intention is somehow to separate us? Hmm. Whatever is pressuring the house is pressuring this little makeshift family to break up. But then again, no one ever knows what forces are at work in any family (laughs) dynamic, do we? I mean, what kind of subversive forces are at work in a house, in a home, and in a home that is haunted? Well, good point, Jackson. I guess we often, well, ever do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's terrifying enough for this episode, I feel like. So we will pick up with Chapter 5 next time and see just what exactly Jackson is doing with our minds. Um, Thanks for spending time with us as we explore the terrifying world that Jackson's created at Hill House. And as always, we ask that you please tell your friends about us. Uh, Push out an episode on your Twitter account or your Facebook account or, or text an episode to a friend. You know what? If you're a teacher and you want to use podcasts in the classroom for instruction, go to our website and download a listening guide for your students to fill out as they listen. We want to support learning around the world uh, and helping us share the world is how you can help us grow. Thank you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 